We are in the last message in our series on Habakkuk, and uh, it's been a pretty crazy book, one that I trust that many of us were not as familiar with, but it's been a tremendous book, and as we've gone through it, we come now to the very end of it, where uh, Habakkuk, excuse me, the prophet, he uh, was having a hard time trying to digest everything that God had revealed to him and how he was to trust in God. And there's times that God reveals things to us or brings us to places in our life where we have a hard time trusting in him. We want, to, we want things to happen. We want to control our destiny. We want to be the captains of our own soul. We want to determine our fate. That's what we want to do. We want control. And it's like the story, and I'm sure that you've heard it, of the man who had, uh, had been visiting a canyon, and he'd actually fallen, uh, fallen right off the edge of it, and he gripped onto a branch. He was holding on for dear life, and there was no one else around. Uh, no one knew his plight, and he just looks up to the heavens as he, he's clenching the branch, and he says, God, if you are there... Help me now, please. And then he hears a voice that says, I am here. Um, I need you to let go. Let go. And then the guy thought for a second, put his head down, looked at the ground below, looked up at heaven again, and goes, is there anybody else there? See, that's what I think many of us are like. Many of us, uh, God calls us to trust, but we don't want to do what he's asking us to do. That's the reality of our life situations, whether that's in our jobs, whether that's with our, our, our spouses, whether that's with our children, whether that's in our finances. Whatever situation we face, we have a very hard time trusting in God. We're great trusting when the crowds are big and everyone's singing God's praises and they sound like us and we feel we have these great feelings, but it's very hard when we feel alone, when life is tough, when the bank account is getting close to zero, and when we're wondering about the pressures and how we're going to pay this bill and how we're going to interact with these people and how we're going to do this and that. And that's where faith becomes very, very hard. But that's exactly the place where God wants us to trust in Him because that's where faith is really born. Faith might be taught in the normal circumstances in which we find ourselves, but faith is fortified and forged, forged and fortified during the times when life is toughest. And that's exactly what God is calling us to. And so today, we have to ask ourselves that. How, is, how are, much are we trusting in God? for whatever circumstance in which we find ourselves. And again, we saw with Habakkuk, he was having to trust after God had showed him all of these things that were going to happen. And you know, if you remember the story, and we've gone through this the past several weeks, and you might be new to this series, maybe just stepping in, but let me just give you a quick recap before we go any further, is Habakkuk is a prophet, considered a minor prophet. Minor, not because of his status, but because of the size of his book. He is speaking on behalf of his people, Judah, that, uh, who had rebelled. These were God's people, and they had rebelled against God, and God finally couldn't take it any longer, was so frustrated that he was bringing discipline. And bringing discipline, he was bringing it in a pretty severe way. He was bringing the hated Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, to basically... Uh, fight and war against Israel so that Israel would wake up, or Judah, excuse me, would wake up to the reality of their condition before God. And it was a very, it was a very troubling thing for uh, Habakkuk to, to receive, to understand that, God, how could you do this? I mean, okay, we need a discipline, but this is pretty bad. I mean, this is awful. How could you use these guys? These guys are worse than we are. And God says, I'm going to discipline them, and I'm going to bring them back to myself. But in the process, you have to understand that I'm also going to bring this to the Chaldeans in my time. And then he responds in prayer and worship. He doesn't run away from God. He doesn't shake his fist at God, question God. His faith drives him to seek to understand God and what God had revealed. And it's an incredible faith, one that I think most of us don't have. If we are very honest with ourselves, I think we have a very hard time when God brings us to a place that we don't believe we should be. We shake our fist at God, we run away, we turn our, or stop our ears, but here is a man of incredible faith that is running to God and praying and asking God for insight and faith to be strengthened to go through this trial. Now, what trial are you facing? What trial, what struggle are you going through right now? You know what it is. I don't know what it is. What are you facing right now? What issue? Something might be in your married relationship. It might be in your job. It might be a health issue. And you're saying, God, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. And God is saying, I'm here. 
let go, trust in me, and, wait and watch what I do. So today, as we explore this, we're going to see how we can let go. How can we truly trust when times are tough? How can God help fortify our faith? What do we need to do? How do we need to think? What do we need to look at? So that's what we're going to examine today. So before we, before we go any further in this message, let's pray and ask God by his Holy Spirit to speak through his living word to our souls. Let's pray. Holy God, just as we sing today, you are holy. So often we have become dull, deaf, dumb to who you are. We fail to see you in your glory because we fail to think the thoughts and discipline our souls to set our minds upon you. We are distracted by so many different things, things that we have to do, whether it's getting the kids ready for bed, or getting them off to school, whether it's uh, going to a job that we may not like, whether it's interacting with people who seem just to hate us. Uh, Lord, we, we face trials, struggles, tribulations day in and day out. And Lord, we wonder how we can go on, how we can persevere, how we can find the strength to carry on. And today, we come before you asking you by your Spirit to speak to our hearts. Lord, we don't want to just go through the motions, but we long for a word from you so that you might receive great glory, that we might be changed, and that your name might be known throughout the earth, and especially in our own lives. Lord, it's great, and we know that we want your name to extend to the furthest reaches of the planet, but there are times, Lord, that we need you to be small enough to speak to the struggles that we are facing, to the desperate and dire circumstances in which we find ourselves so many times. So today, Lord, I ask you to speak to us, reveal yourself to us, not because of who we are, but because of who you are. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let's jump right into this section. Uh, we started off last week in examining that he responds in prayer, verses 1 through Two And most scholars believe 3 through uh, 19 is a, uh, considered a, a poem of sorts, a reflection, as he is thinking about what God has done in the past. And I want to examine his words verse by verse so that we can see how his faith was strengthened as he dealt the, with the news that God was going to bring judgment on his own people. Let's begin with verse 3. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. Selah. This is a, a term that's used, uh, and, and again, reminiscent of the Psalms. It is a time that usually meant for reflection, to pause. No one is exactly sure what the term might mean. Uh, it could be a liturgical or a musical term, but most believe that it means time to reflect and think upon what was just being said or written. So he says Selah, and again, this is reminiscent of uh, the Psalms, these songs of reflection. And, and we've talked about this in the past few weeks. We talked about like what your favorite song is, songs that might motivate you, songs that like you work out to, or songs that put you kind of in a sad mood, or songs that put you in a romantic mood, or songs that remind you of, of the past. And there, there are songs with lyrics that r- remind us of certain periods of times in our lives. And we all have these different songs, these things that we have that we treasure, we take with us, that we might know all the words to that no one even needs to remind us of because it reflects a certain time in our lives. Matter of fact, I like to play this game with my wife when we get together and we have some time just away from the kids. I'll go on YouTube and find songs from the 80s and the 90s and see how, how many bars I can play on the song before she can know it. And Because she listened to the radio all the time as a kid. And so it, it usually doesn't get more than 30 seconds. I mean, most of the time she can do it within two or three seconds. Because she's a trained musician, she knows it. And it's incredible to me. Not one word was spoken, she just knows the song. And then she knows all the words of the song. And I never know any of the words, and I always get them wrong, so I make up my own words, which really annoys her. Okay, I don't know if anybody, that you might do that, but that's what I've done in the past. But here, this song is, is, is written so that it can reflect the experiences of those who have gone before. And it's a way to inspire us. One of the greatest songs probably ever written within Christianity or Christian history is the song, It Is Well With My Soul. And the circumstances around that song is absolutely phenomenal. um, It was uh, (laughs) the, the man who wrote it and composed it, composed it after he had sent his wife and children across the ocean on a boat that sank. 
and they all died, drowned. And he composed this song, It Is Well With My Soul. And it's an incredible testimony of someone going through trials and tribulations of life where their faith is being forged and and really fortified to show and declare in the midst of deep and dire circumstances the reality of who God is and who we see ourselves in the light of Him. And it's an incredible thing. And that's very similar in what is reminiscent of what we see here with Habakkuk. He is reflecting on who God is. And he is reminding Reminding himself that God will respond in power. Because see, in Taman and, and Mount Paran, he is reflecting on what God had done in the past. And we're going, he's going back, in essence, through history. See, God came from Taman and Mount Paran. Taman was named after uh, the Esau and was called the city of the Edomites. Paran was located on the Sinai Peninsula. Both of these were nomadic peoples, but they're also referring back to times when God displayed great power when he brought the Israelites into the promised land, causing other people to fear. And Habakkuk is reciting what God has done in the past, how he displayed his power. And to fortify our faith in troubled times requires us to remember that God will respond in power. And here, God will respond in power. We, we have this very, uh, very limited way of understanding how God works. Matter of fact, I'd like to say that we put blinders on. Uh, I grew up, as many of you might know, I grew up in central Illinois in a town called Arthur. And in Arthur, we had a lot of Amish people. And no, I'm not Amish, contrary to how I might look, but I'm not Amish. And growing up, we all had all these Amishmen around us, and we'd see buggies everywhere. And the buggies had to have, the horses had to have blinders on because they would become distracted and they would go off the road. And so we have this tendency, though, to put blinders on them when we look at God, and we can't get a full picture of who God is. And we have to pull away the blinders of our circumstance to be able to see the reality of who God is and understand that God is not immune, deaf, or unaware um, of our difficulties he is there. And like Israel, when we depend on him, he will show himself to us. As we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. That when we're fully committed to him, when we fully trust in him, I mean, God is looking for people. How, how many people are trusting in me? He's looking for that. He's looking for those that are saying, despite what I'm going through, I'm going to truly trust in you. And then God responds in power. And if we know God and trust in him, we are assured that God will be there when we need him. God came from Taman and Paran to help Israel when Israel didn't expect him to. And he will help us. He will respond in power in amazing ways when we trust in him. Now, notice verse 3 again. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His splendor covered the heavens. The earth was full of his praise. God's power is seen throughout all of creation. We cannot think that God is not part of our world. He's the creator of everything that is good. We can see the power of God in every part of the universe. Just this last week, we celebrated a solar eclipse. And many of the news outlets were running a piece from 1979. How many of you saw that clip? From 1979, it was Walter Cronkite. And he was saying that the next eclipse was going to be in the year 2017. And what I'm amazed by that is, is that here, you could predict this in 1979, that this was what was going to happen, meaning that there is order in our world. And see, he is saying here, his splendor covered the heavens. Even God's power is available and seen throughout the entire universe. God's power is seen throughout his creation. It's clearly seen in nature. All around us. Now, why should that matter to us? Because when we see and reflect that God is a God of order, that his, his truth and his glory is embedded throughout all creation, that should give us hope to know that if God can do that, if he can create the heavens and the earth in six days and make this so beautiful, do you think that he's going to have a problem with the circumstances of our own lives? I, and I have to... I, I really do struggle. I have some friends that um, are really uh, committed... Um, evolutionist. And uh, I, I, I just have a very hard time with that because I, I look at creation itself. And uh, I, I've gone back and forth with a relative of mine who is a very dedicated biologist. And we, we get into uh, discussions that clear out the family room when we're together. We don't fight, but our family's like, okay, it's time for us to go now. Um, but we get into these debates with one another. 
but I've gone back and forth with him, and one of the things that I, I said is I have a very hard time. For, first of all, where do we come from if, if God didn't create us? You say we evolved from a cell. Okay, so we evolved from a cell. So this cell just decides to become something else randomly on its own after a process of million years, comes into an intricate being with eyes, ears, and nose, and can be on a planet then that has a temperature that is sustainable for it to have life, and then can grow food that, that can live off of on that planet that just randomly happened. And then it can find something like itself, but different enough that the two can come together to reproduce to produce people. I said, I'm sorry, but you have way more faith than I do. I just don't see that. I, 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 I don't, I, I, maybe this is where I'm, I'm coming back, and I, I, I believe that God did that. And I, I clearly see God's design in creation. And so is Habakkuk. He's looking around going, I see God as a God of order, that God is a God of power if I will stop and reflect on it. God's power can be clearly seen through his creation, clearly seen in nature. The Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And that there's enough evidence of God, by the way, in creation alone worthy to condemn a person to hell. Something we don't think about. We don't talk about very often. But you know the Bible says that. Because I always get the question often, what happens to those people who have not yet heard the name of Jesus? You know, the, Roman, the book of Romans, chapter 1, verse 18 says this. I like to call that verse up. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of God, of the immortal God, for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. See, our God is a God of order, and his power can be evidenced within nature itself. Now, we have a very hard time with that. We're fine with seeing that God is in nature, but where is he within my own life? And that's where we have to go back and see that God's power can be seen all around us if we simply stop and quiet our minds but it goes further than that. Now look at verse 4. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. I, I find that fascinating. The word veiled literally is hidden. He hid his power. Why did he hide his power? What makes him want to hide it? That's what blows my mind. See, like the sun, he showed his greatness, but he veiled his power so that it couldn't be seen in all of its fullness. God's power is seen over all of creation, but here we read that God veiled or hid it. For some mysterious reason, God wants us to see him, but from the clues left for us in creation. And we can see that in our own lives, God's power is at work, but it's often concealed in our circumstances. It's, it's, God has this tendency, we want the, uh, I like to say the flashbang, we want the miraculous, but God is often moving pieces to pieces to pieces in ways that we may not see the subtle until the, the, the subtle moves until right at the end where we see that God did a miraculous work within our lives. And here it was being concealed within the circumstances that was going on. We don't always see God at work in our tough times, but he is. Consider these examples. He was working Joseph's life when he was sold into slavery when he was falsely accused of rape and then put into prison. He was at work in Ruth's life after her husband and brother-in-law and father-in-law died, and she then accompanied her mother-in-law to a land that she didn't know. And yet God was orchestrating and bringing the circumstances to its fullness when he brought her into a relationship with Boaz, became the kinsman redeemer, and she became the great-grandmother of King David, or a grandmother of King David. We have instances like Jonah, when Jonah ran away from God, and God brought the storm, God brought the fish, he caused the fish to vomit Jonah up on dry ground. He was at work in Daniel's life when he was taken into slavery to serve a pagan king, and when he was thrown into the lion's den. He was at work in Esther's life, despite the fact that she was placed into a situation where she sacrificed her virtue for a pagan king. 
He was at work in the life of Mary when she learned that she was pregnant with the Messiah by supernatural means. People scoffed at her and laughed at her. And when her fiancé was talking about ending their engagement, once he learned of her pregnancy, God has a way of working in ways that we do not expect. And as soon as we think that God has to operate a certain way and we put our blinders on, he has a backwood teenage girl become the mother of the Messiah. God uses the dark, dumb, difficult, and even the disobedient to do his will. You may not see God working, but he is working, orchestrating circumstances, moving pieces, changing lives, and working behind the scenes. We don't always see it. We don't always know that it's even him. I don't know if you're familiar with the graffiti artist Banksy. Anyone ever familiar with him? He's been in the news quite a bit of time. He's in London. He came across in New York for a while, and he's the graffiti artist, but he is so good that his, his stuff has become like all over. I mean, people are, are, are finding his artwork everywhere, and, and he, it's amazing art, and they can't find who he is. There's just this term, Banksy, is being used. And he's, he's decided to remain undercover as he's putting his sign and different statements all over, and people are trying to figure out who he is. And I, and I look at that, and it's like God is showing his work in different lives, but he's choosing to remain anonymous. It took a while for people to figure out and piece it all together that it was one person that was doing it. But see, God was doing that behind the scenes with the greatest example is his son, Jesus. God chose to remain anonymous in many ways. He sent his son to show the depth of who he is, but that requires faith to really truly understand and see him because he didn't come in such a way that the world would see him. He didn't come as the conquering king. He came as the suffering servant. There was nothing about him that would draw people to him. He looked and sounded just like us. He was born in Bethlehem to a teenage girl and her betrothed husband, became a political refugee in Egypt, and then was reared in Nazareth. There was no majesty about him. He remained anonymous. Even when his glory could not remain hidden through his miracles, teachings, and ultimately on the Mount of Transfiguration when his glory couldn't be held back anymore. That's where God, he's concealed in our circumstances, but there are times where God just reveals himself in a glimpse and we get an idea of who he is. Uh, this, this past summer, I have small children, so I am doomed to be in Pixar movies until the next, like, 15 years. And so I saw the movie Cars 3. Anybody ever seen that movie, Cars 3? It was a good movie. Uh, one of the, the, the most interesting parts that struck me as I watched this movie was when Lightning McQueen decides to enter into this race with Cruz, and he thinks it's a race that his mentor had raced in, and it turns out that it's a demolition derby. And people, they knew he was a famous race car, so they decided to spray mud all over him so they could con- he could compete in there. And he goes through the entire race, and Cruz ends up winning it. And at the end, though, the water hits him, and, it, and it, the mud peels off, revealing his glory, in essence. And that's when people all respond. Because if, if he would have come without all that stuff on him, people would have just enamored to him. See, it's the same way with God did. He works in circumstances in ways that we could not begin to understand. In essence, Jesus came clothed with flesh, showing himself. But even on the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory couldn't be held back anymore. We saw it. And, and that's how God is working. He shows forth in our circumstances, not always in the miraculous, where everybody bows down and is amazed and draws the crowds, but in the quiet, still way that we have a hard time identifying. If we want to see how God's power is at work, then it requires us to consider his work in the past. Consider his work in the past. See, that's one of the things that's at play here, actually, throughout this entire poem. When he is referring to so many different things, he is evoking images that had been taught and passed from generation to generation of God's miraculous work through his people. You see this throughout the, in, uh, the scripture several times, that different biblical characters would, re- would write a song to commemorate what God had done, and they would pass that song on to the next generation. We don't do this very much in, in our culture. We're not a very oral culture. Some who may come from different cultures where uh, there wasn't a lot of reading, but you would tell the story and tell the story, and it would pass on and pass on and pass on, and it was imperative that it would pass on the next generation. And here we have him telling the story about what God had done. You look at it. His brightness was like the light, verse 4. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence. This is talking about the uh, plagues within Egypt. 
and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. All of creation, in essence, was going and doing what God wanted it to do, but it was not doing what everyone expected it to do. His were the everlasting ways. He says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction, and the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Again, these are nomadic peoples, one in the southern part of um, what is now Egypt, and one in the Sinai Peninsula. And these people are trembling at their seeing what God had done. Was your wrath against the rivers, Lord, causing the rivers to part? And again, they were walking through and then covering back over the army of Pharaoh. Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses on your chariot of salvation? It's an image invoking God as a warrior. You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. That God is a warrior that is battling on behalf of his people. That's this amazing thing that we see here, that God is battling on behalf of his people, that he cares so much about us. And he is showing that why he is doing this, Habakkuk is doing this because he wants us to have hope. To see that God worked through other people's lives, even when they were disobedient, dumb, and difficult, and that he'll work through your life as well. Even when we're being dumb and difficult and disobedient. I shared several years ago that uh, when I went into, um, I did a second seminary, and uh, I was really struggling financially, and then God really miraculously supplied this money. And I looked at a friend of mine, and I said, hey, isn't it great to know that this is God's sign to me that I'm supposed to be here? And he goes, or it could be that you were stupid, and God's just bailing you out. I'm like, in my head, I'm like, no, that was probably more the right answer. <laughs> and God is there for that, even in the middle of our our issues, our struggles, the consequences, that he can show himself to be merciful. And here, he's considering his work. And we need these examples in Scripture to inspire us. When I was young, and I would sit in services, and I would hear about who Jesus was, and I'd hear about uh, who, what God had done, and I, I longed to hear the stories that I saw within Scripture. And I didn't know Scripture very well yet. But I wanted to hear about people who struggled like I did because everybody else seemed to have halos on all the time. And every biography I read presented the person like sharing the gospel 24 hours a day and weeping over every single soul. And they never seemed to have a struggle in their marriage or their life or their work or with people. And I'm like, it's not real. And then I came across one uh, book. It actually was uh, called Augustine's, or Augustine's, Augustine's Confessions. He was a, one, called one of the church fathers. He was living in the 3rd and 4th century. And suddenly, this is a guy I could relate to. Because this guy, he starts off 19 years old, gets a girl pregnant, has her move in and with him. They never get married. Raises this kid for 15 years. He's dealing with different lusts, and his father was encouraging it. His mother was a dedicated believer, praying on behalf of her son. Her, her dad, his father is encouraging him to go do whatever. And he actually goes in a great career, and he's making money, and he's getting some notoriety when God shows up in his life. And that he, he ends up coming to know Jesus. He leaves this life of sin behind, but it's, it's, it's calling to him. He's struggling in these desires that he has within him. And I, I read that, and I finally said, I can identify with someone who is struggling. And, I, and the more I looked at Scripture, I see people that are struggling. But I saw preachers bringing these people to look like they had never, ever had issues. But we see that the Bible is intensely real about our life and our circumstances. And that's what he's recalling is God's work in the past through circumstances where people had been disobedient, but he still turned to him in hope and longed to obey him. And he was considering what God had done in the past on behalf of his people. And that inspires us. We need that encouragement to know that God's not done with us. You know that? God's not done with you. God is not done with your life. No matter how much you've messed it up, that there is grace. I was reading this story today um, in the news. And it actually contrasted two different issues. Uh, One was of a a young woman, and I don't know, it was in the the news, I don't know if you saw this or not, but it was a girl at her Christian school, Um, she was the, basically the valedictorian of her school, and she ended up getting pregnant. Um, And uh, the school decided to, uh, I mean, she was repentant, she was broken, she admitted her sin, she confessed her wrong, but the school would not let her participate in the graduation because of the circumstances. And it became national news. 
about this. This girl is seeking uh, forgiveness, and the school was caught in this issue. Do we, do we glorify and put someone up who's a valedictorian of the class, and their sin is so noticeable to everybody else? It was a dilemma. They didn't know exactly what to do. And so um, they decided not to let her do that. And that caused another story to come out. And this one woman wrote a story um, reflecting on this, and she goes, I was that same girl. And I, I not only was I pregnant, but I, my, my father was a pastor. And so what do I do? And she said, I sat across from my dad. I was debating on what to say and what to do. And finally I sat and looked at my dad and I told him the whole situation and he's put his head down. And he, he, he started to cry. And he says, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed in you. I am. But I guess that means that God has given me someone more to love. And she started crying and he goes, I love you. And she, she just started to cry. And she said, Dad, will you forgive me? He goes, of course I forgive you. And he wrapped his arms around her. And she goes, I experienced the most powerful thing in the entire world. Grace. Grace. See, that's powerful. Where God gives us something that we did not deserve. That's grace. And that's why we have to consider what God has done in the past as we look to the future. And as we look at our present circumstances, to know that God's grace is sufficient for you. His power is made perfect in our weaknesses. We have to consider God's work in the past to know that he's going to respond in power. And we have to understand that he will fulfill his purposes. He will fulfill his purposes this the entire passage is God working to show himself to man. His purposes cannot be stopped. Nothing in all of creation can stop him. He is showing up as a warrior. You know, it's interesting. There's a phrase in sports about an athlete that it's amazing. It says, you can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. You can't stop God, and you can't hope to contain him either. God will do and accomplish his purpose. And that was what Habakkuk is saying. He is going to show up as a warrior. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers? No. Or your indignation against the sea? No. When you rode out on your horses on your chariot of salvation to rescue your people who were being pursued, again, this is imagery from the Exodus, where the Israelites had come through the Red Sea, that God had parted the water of the Red Sea. This entire body of about three million people are making their way through. And then they see Pharaoh's army, and people begin to be terrified. The army starts to go, pursuing after them. The Israelites get all to the other side, and then God causes the entirety of the Red Sea to fall upon them and drown the entire army. And he's saying, were you mad at the rivers? No. You came out to help us. You came to help us with your chariot of salvation. He's invoking this warrior imagery of them, God coming to help them in their time of need. You stripped the sheath from your bow. You're calling for many arrows. You're ready to destroy. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. Now it's interesting, the water imagery that is evoked. Rivers, sea. It, in, in, um, in the Old Testament scriptures, water all, often most symbolizes chaos. It was the unknown. They didn't know how, what was down there. They didn't know what was in the bottom of the sea. They didn't have that capability or that type of technology. Waters symbolized chaos. And he's saying, even in all the chaos, you're going to fulfill your purposes. With all the junk that's out of control in my life, with everything that's not the way that I want it to be, that God is still working and orchestrating our lives for the glory of His name. He will fulfill His purposes in our life. He cannot be defeated, destroyed. He is always the hero, always the greatest of all time, and He will fulfill His purposes. He will go so far in the fulfillment of His purposes that He will disrupt the created order to do so. He will disrupt the created order to do so. Look at verse 11 for a moment. Again, he's evoking imagery from Israel's history. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. He's saying that it seems like you're you're battling on and time hasn't even moved. Time is different to God, by the way. It's like... uh, Time between what we experience and what God experiences is completely different. For example, if, 
if uh, an author were writing the book and he says that the character stopped, he's talking about the character, it says, Mary ran to the window and looked out the window and then he stops, puts his pen down, gets up, goes get a drink and maybe he doesn't pick that pen back up again for several weeks. He finally comes back after several weeks, stops, picks up the pen and it says, and then she went home and saw her friend Jean. Now, how much time has passed Mary? Just like that. No time at all. Now, past to him, the time was very different. See, that's how the time is different between God and us. It's a very different thing. He says, even then, as all the stuff was going on, your arrows sped by. He says, the flash of your, the sun and moon seemed to just stand still in their place. And he's evoking the imagery of Joshua at Gibeon. If you're familiar with this story that the Gibeonites were being attacked by the Amorites and they call for, uh, they extend a lifeline to Joshua saying, you've got to come and help us or they're going to destroy us. So Joshua comes and shows up and it's pretty amazing what happens next in Joshua chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. It says, and as they fled, the Amorites fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. It is not written in the book of Jasher, the sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man. For the Lord fought for Israel. See, when God is fighting on behalf of his people, he will even suspend creation itself to work on behalf because of the depth of his love. And do you think that's hard for him? It's not like he has to go through some intricate process. I've got to get here. I've got to press this button. I've got to get that lever. Oh, man, it's like looking at an airplane cockpit. How do I get all this down? No. It's that easy. See, we, we have a very low view of God. And a very high view of the immutability or unchangeability of the world. But he created that. Why can he not suspend it? That's why it's called a miracle. He will disrupt the created order. God will change creation itself to fulfill his purposes and to show himself to be God. He caused the plagues in Egypt, the Red Sea to part, and he made it retreat to drown the entire army of Pharaoh. He gave the Israelites manna, quail, and water from a dry rock. Not just enough water up for here for me to preach with, but to, to give water to an entire nation, millions of people, and their animals, their goats. Oh man, I don't know if they had goats. But he took care of all of those things. No problem for God to do that. And then he caused to make sure that even the soles of their feet did not wear out. He parted the Jordan River for them to walk across into the promised land. He caused the sun to stand still for Joshua and the sun's shadow to go backwards for Hezekiah. There's nothing that he cannot do. He caused the rain to stop for Elijah for three and a half years, then caused it to rain again. He will change the status quo. He will disrupt the created order. And he does it in a ways that we do not expect. If we trust in the Lord, stay about our task, and remain faithful to Him, He will do the miraculous. He will do that which causes unbelievers to stand up and take notice. And He does it for the glory of His name. And know this, God will deliver His people in His time. God will deliver His people in His time. Look at verse 12. You marched throughout the earth in fury. You threshed. Why did God do all this? Why did He march through the earth in fury? He did it for the salvation of His people. That's the next part within the verse itself. Look at verse 13. He says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. But notice that. He does it for what reason? He went out for the salvation of his people, for the salvation of his anointed. Those who who are considered his children, that he is marked for a special thing. He will deliver, not in the way we may expect, but He will orchestrate the entirety of creation for the salvation of His people. He loves us. He cares about you, your life, your spouse, children, work, and the various details of your life. And if you're in distress, 
Call on him and he will bring deliverance for his people. And when he does so, he will defeat evil in the process. He will defeat evil in the process. Look at verse 12. You crush the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. In other words, you're exposing him and you will shame him. You will not just defeat him, but you will shame him from thigh, obviously, to neck. This entire region, everything will be exposed. Selah. He's saying he will defeat evil. He will bring justice. In fact, that has already been inaugurated through Christ. See, Satan thought he was defeating Jesus through the cross, and his resurrection, however, showed Christ's victory over him. I remember a story from the movie The Patriot. I don't know if you remember the movie The Patriot with Mel Gibson in it. There's a fascinating line. At the end of the Revolutionary, or near the end of the Revolutionary War, when General Cornwallis, the British commander, is being urged to surrender by his staff at Yorktown as bullets and cannonballs whiz by, Cornwallis says this, How could it come to this, an army of rebels? Peasants, everything will change. Everything has changed. I love that line. See, I think that's how Satan felt after Jesus' resurrection. He thought he had victory, but he was defeated. And one wonders if he feels that way as he looks at what God is doing today in the lives of his people. God didn't choose the eloquent, the wise, the scholars, politicians, or the powerful. And I love this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 through 21 Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And then again, in 1 Corinthians, just actually a few verses down in verse 25, I believe, or 26. For consider your calling, brothers, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So that's a pretty amazing passage, because it's telling us right there that God will go about defeating evil, not in the political process, not through legislation, not through celebrities endorsements, not through amazing Christian movies or Christian songs or Christian conferences. He does it through everyday people like you and me. That he changed people from the inside out. And that shows the gospel is living when you live the life that God wants you to live. See, we want, we want people to come and we want this amazing preaching and we want everybody to get really excited. But it's in the everyday moments where we stand for truth, we refuse to compromise our faith, that we see the gospel is living in us. And that's how evil is defeated as we learn to put it to death and as we remember and carry about in our bodies the death of Christ, a reminder to Satan that he is defeated, but we also walk in newness of life by the Spirit of God as we live within his resurrection life so that people might see Jesus in us. And that is an understanding that we are not, we are not enslaved to this world any longer, that we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we're slaves to righteousness, that the world has been crucified to me and me to the world, that I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's what it's about. And see, evil will be defeated ultimately, and it began to be defeated, um, really seen in Christ, but the fullness of that defeat will be seen when Christ comes again, and then he judges evil and puts it away for all time. It's not through celebrities or in the political process, not through Hollywood or great programs. It is through the Spirit of God working through people just like us. We show by our lives that evil's been defeated but we also know that God will bring ultimate deliverance for his people when Jesus comes again to put down all those who have risen up against him. Now, if, we're to have, if we are to have God fortify our faith, then we have to understand that all of this requires us to wait patiently. Nothing excites people more by telling them to wait. 
I know waiting is your favorite thing to do in the entire world. And I can't imagine what he was waiting for. Look at verse 16, the latter part of 16. He says, Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk determined to wait on God for God to bring it about in his time. His time. Not our time, not on our schedule, but in his time. This is where faith comes in. We can't rush it. And often when we do, we make extremely bad mistakes. As the saying goes, fools rush in. Patience means ceding control to another and refusing to take control yourself. Can we wait patiently? Where do we need patience right now? Where do you need patience? With your spouse, children, job, busyness, house, Education, finances, God is there and he is not silent. Now, that doesn't mean we stop working. We continue on to be about our task. Even when God supplied the manna, the Israelites had to go get it. So we have to understand we need to be about our work as we rely on him. But know that as we wait, it may be painful. Waiting is not easy. Look at verse 16 again. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound rottenness enters into my bones my legs tremble beneath me yet i will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon those who invade us that was pretty hard for him to hear he had spoken with god and god had overwhelmed him with what he had shared with him he was completely shaken by god speaking to him judgment was coming and the thought of it was overwhelming to him about his own people, but also he wanted to wait and see it happen to the nation um, that was doing the invading. He had to wait for it to come. He knew it was coming, and it almost made it worse. I, I don't know if you've ever had someone that jumps out behind a door and scares you. You ever had that? My, my, my cousin used to do that to me. We went on vacation together when I was in high school, and he jumped out one time from behind a door to scare me. And of course, I was like, wah! You know, it really freaked me out, and it made him laugh so hard that he made it his mission to do that the entire trip whenever he possibly could. Because if you set a precedent, and, he, and it's, of course it's like the cousin that annoys you the most, right? The one that you might be closest with. Everyone has that cousin, that relative, that really just, you know, you can do that with one another. But it got so bad that I, every time that I would come in the room and I didn't see him, I knew that it was coming. So I would be looking for it, which made it worse, and I'm poking the bed and couch, and, and then he would come out from other place that I did not see, and, and it was made it worse. It was almost as if if I didn't know it was coming, it wouldn't have been that bad. But because I was paranoid and waiting for it, it made it even worse than it was before. And it's the same here. Now he knows the judgment's coming, and he has to wait for it. And it's like, when is it coming? And it's going to be painful. His body is racked as he's thinking through this. He's overwhelmed at the thought. And he knows he has to wait. And it's going to be painful. Because he has to see his own people get punished first. And he didn't like that. And that hurt. And know that when you wait, as you're waiting on God, you might have to deal with some of the consequences of your previous actions. And it's going to hurt But God wants you to cling to him through the middle of it, and he will guide us through. He will guide us through. And we have to realize that our waiting must go on despite the the problems surrounding us. The problems surrounding us. Now, let's get an idea of the problems. Now, we think, again, we, when I, maybe this is just my own experience. Maybe you're different. But when I would hear sermons as a young man, it was always the ideal and not the reality of where I lived. And it's made me have a longing to really understand Scripture in its fullness because I believe that Scripture teaches and shows us the reality of the situations in which all of us find ourselves. That it's not removed from our experiences, but it's acutely familiar and aware of them. And that God leads us to a place of tension. He always does because He wants to develop and fortify or forge that faith within us because, again, faith isn't formed on the mountain. It's formed in the valley. That's where we find it. That's where it's in the dark times that we really find where our trust is. And that's why we walk by faith, not by sight. So here we see what's going on. 
he lays out the situation in verse 17. He says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Now, let's get an idea of what he just described in our modern understanding in Midwest. All right? Let's, let's take a journey out of Aurora for a minute. Let's drive out on Route 30, and let's head through Hinkley. Every field is gone. It's completely dead. It's just dirt. There's no farm stand selling corn on the cob, right? You go into the grocery store at Jewel, or maybe you go to Surmac or Aldi, it's bare. There's nothing there. There's no food. There's no water. There's nothing. Walmart's done. Aldi's done. Surmac's done. I mean, you can see there's just remnants. It's just bare shells wherever you go. That's what he's describing right now in their minds. That the olive fails. That's the, the harvest. There's no food. There's no meat. There's no livestock. There's nothing. He is com- describing a situation of complete disaster, calamity. And he's saying that even then, even in the middle of all this, I'm going to rejoice and I'm going to trust in the Lord. Look at verse 18. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Even when there's nothing in the grocery store, even when my freezer is completely, everything in it is gone, I got nothing in the cabinets, I got nothing for my kids. This is talking about something that is completely devastating to an agrarian society. That's how bad this is. He said even the middle of this, as we're starving to death, I'm going to trust and I'm going to rejoice. Now, can you say that about yourself? I don't know if you're like me. I have a hard time rejoicing when just little things go wrong. I get frustrated when a door handle breaks or that light switch I can't fix. Or, and these little things that just annoy. And then I'm dealing with pressures all day long. And I can't imagine being in such a cataclysmic event as this. And yet... Despite all that, he still has faith. He is rejoicing in God. See, look at his declaration. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now imagine saying that with a, with a, a stomach that's growling and a mouth that is dry kids that are crying and the knowledge that many of the people that you love could be destroyed. Now say that. That's hard. But that's exactly what he did. That he would go on despite the problems that were surrounding him. I will rejoice. And he resolved to place his hope in him. And we must make a similar resolve that no matter what we go through, no matter what situation we find ourselves, no matter what's happening in our families, no matter what's going on with our bank accounts or our paychecks, with our bosses, with our classmates, what's going on in our neighborhood or in our own home, that we have to resolve to place our hope in Him and in Him alone, knowing that He will get us through. Habakkuk made a resolution based on God's character to trust in Him. He knew that God would get him through. Hardship doesn't create faith. It reveals it, and it shapes it. God is calling us to strengthen our faith. Hardship is on the horizon. This world is not going to get better. The Bible says, in fact, that it's going to get much, much worse. We must trust in Him, wait on Him, knowing that He cares for us beyond anything we can imagine, so much so that He gave His Son as a, sac- excuse me, as a sacrifice, as a substitute for our sins provide us with salvation so that we can have peace and rest in Him. But it begins with us trusting on Him, placing our faith in Him, and then waiting on Him, continually hoping in Him, knowing that He will help us.